Citadel Square, what, what a morning, huh? For those of you who are visiting and ex or exploring Christianity, you may still have lots of questions after today, and that's great. We're glad that you are here. And so we want you to know that you're welcome here. We would love to talk with you more. Maybe you saw someone on the pew that you're sitting on, stand up as a member. They would love to talk to you after service. And so go talk to one of them, ask them questions after service. And it's our hope that John 17, 3 becomes reality for you. It says this, it says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, knowing God and being in his presence is what our passage today is all about. Our biblical passage today is Exodus 33, 1 through 17. And so as you're turning there, here is what we are going to see in the text today. We're going to see that God's presence defines God's people. God's presence defines God's people. We're in between a couple series. We just finished up 2 Corinthians. That was an incredible walk through that biblical book. And now we're getting ready to start Luke next week. Steve will start Luke next week. And so with me, you get kind of an Exodus sandwich today, okay? So that's where we're at today is in Exodus 33. I've been reading through Exodus uh, earlier in the year. And it's just, it's become one of my favorite books. And this passage jumped off the page to me. So let's jump right in and I'll provide some context for us as we work through the text. And then we'll see some things that I think God really wants to show us in this passage as we look at the presence of the Lord. So look at Exodus 33 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. So we're going to see here in this first opening paragraph, if you're taking notes with us, idolatry fractures fellowship. So idolatry amongst the people has fractured fellowship with God. To give you kind of a, a broad sweep of what's happened in Exodus thus far, we're introduced in, in Exodus to this baby, Moses, right? Moses is born. God 
really has his hand on Moses and guides him for a particular purpose, which unfolds as we read through the book of Exodus. It's going to link back to all these promises we've seen in Genesis, and these things are carried out through this man Moses. Moses is called then in chapters 3 through 6, and then a conflict with this probably the nastiest character we've seen in the Bible thus far, Pharaoh, in chapter 7 through 10 in Exodus. Then the Hebrew people leave out of Egypt as they're enslaved in Egypt, and they, are, they leave out in chapters 11 and 12. You'll hear as we're talking about uh, these people, you'll hear me call them maybe the Hebrew people, the Israelites, the people of God, God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. They're the same people, just if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, okay? Then in chapters 13 through 15, they cross the Red Sea. The Israelites journey on toward Sinai, which is where the location for the context. This is where this is happening, at Mount Sinai. They journey toward Mount Sinai in chapter 16 through 18. The law is given. The Ten Commandments are given in uh, Exodus 19 through 24. And then our passage is right here smack in the middle of two other important sections. So we're in chapter 33, and there are two large sections. One is chapters 25 through 31 where the uh, tabernacle blueprints are given. This, this tent, this dwelling place of God where, where God can actually dwell with his people. That tabernacle, that's what they're going to build. So God can have a people and he can dwell with them. We see this as this remnant uh, um, idea from Genesis. And then right here in the middle is, is our section, but it's, it's bookended by the tabernacle actually being constructed in chapters 35 through 40. And then there's this section, there's this idolatry section in chapters 30 th 32 through 34. So we are, are introduced to our, to our paragraph here coming off of a pretty famous story. You may even be familiar with it if you've uh, gone to church before or if you've, you went to church as a kid or if you are, are a Christian and have read God's word or if you're just interested in God's word. It's the golden calf. And so we're coming off the heels of this idol worship. The commandments are given. This is how you are to, to follow worshiping God. And then as, while Moses is up on the mountain meeting with God, the people are growing impatient. They want a God to worship. And so they construct a golden calf, an idol. And then we hear this disastrous word. In verse 4, we see that, this disastrous word. It, it just, that, that word just kind of leaps off the pages. This is serious. And so in verse 1, it says, The people whom you have brought up, the Lord is now speaking to Moses, and he, ha he has this, this bad news for Moses and the Israelite people right off the rip. So idolatry is happening. This is serious. This is no just little tiff between God and the people. This is a mirror of Genesis 3, the fall happening. And fellowship being broken. Adam and Eve being cast out of the garden. Now we have a, almost another fall. 
a fall like when God looked around and he only saw Noah. Everyone else was almost living as little idolaters all over the globe. He saw Noah. Now he sees Moses, right? Moses is his man. And he's got bad news for Moses and the Israelite people. God is not even claiming this journey. So he now says, look at this. The people whom you have brought up. He's talking to Moses. He's saying, these are the people that you have brought up here. And this is, this is sad news. Because it's something you could overlook if you see the next couple of verses. Because the next couple of verses have a little bit of hope. But if you're familiar with the language of Exodus 3, 8, turn back there. Turn back to the beginning of Exodus for me. Exodus chapter 3. Keeping our verse there in mind. The people whom you have brought up. And then look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 8. It says this. It says, And I have come down to deliver them out of the land, out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing, sounds familiar, right? Flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So who's doing the action there in, in chapter 3? It's God, right? Now who's God saying is, is leading the people in chapter 33? Moses. It's not a good place to be. This is bad news, folks. All right? So back to, back to Exodus 33 here. God is acknowledging the covenant and his promise to the people. The relationship is still here. That is God-driven. It's like the covenant that God makes with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, if you're familiar with that covenant, mentioning this same very land that he's going to bring them to, the promised land. Who is the only active party in that covenant? Do you remember? What is Abraham doing in Genesis chapter 15? A great sleep falls upon him and God is the one who is making the covenant. He makes the covenant. The fellowship here has been broken by idolatry and the idolatry fractures the fellowship. So let's continue in verse 2. I will send an angel before you. All right, this is, this is better news. We like angels, right? If he said, I will send a demon, that's not going to be good, right? He says, I'll send an angel. All right, the angel's going to go in. What's the angel going to do? You can say kick butt in church, okay? He's going to clean house, all right? The angel's going to go. All right, verse 1, not looking so good. We already looked ahead a little bit at verse, verse, verse 4. We know it's a disastrous word. But verse 1, eh, I like when God was taking ownership of this journey. Now he's putting it on me. All right, verse 2, angel. Angel good. You can write that down. Angel good. Okay? Milk and honey. Still sounding pretty good. Let's look at verse 3 there. Milk and honey. A land flowing with milk and honey. All right, this is fertile land. Cows are going to roam. I'm going to conclude that there are going to be bees there just based on the text. Okay? But then a turn. In the middle there, but, it's a bad word here, but I will not go up among you. There's the bomb God was hinting at in verse 1. So let, and then he says, lest 
I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. God cannot dwell among them. Remember the shadow of Genesis 3? They're cast out of the garden. Here again, God cannot dwell among them. There is unrepentant sin that has fractured fellowship between God and his people. So even this, we can often see like this tells us something about the character of God. Yeah, it tells us that God is merciful. It tells us God is merciful because he even, even is aware, he's aware of this separation, right? And he says, I'm going to be merciful by not being near you lest I consume you, lest I wipe you out. So God knows they are rebellious and if they are in his midst, their lives would be at risk. So here in Exodus, God is going to give them real estate he promised, but he is not going with them. This is the disastrous word they respond to in verse 4. It says, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. So, the disastrous word, the sobering verdict is what is happening here. Begs a question of the Israelites and it begs a question of us today. There are going to be, as we walk through this, there's going to be some similarities that we're going to see. And there are going to be some distinguishes, distinguishments that it's, man, they're in the Old Testament. And praise be to God, we are on the other side of the cross. Amen. So, this begs a question of us that applies to us pretty well today, I think. Would we want God's provision without his presence? Would we want his provision without his presence? Because that that's, sounds like that's what the Israelites are about to get. No one puts on ornaments. They are reading the room here. They're reading the character and the word of God. And they are not adorning themselves with this ornamental jewelry. They are responding appropriately. But then in verse 5, the first part of verse 5 is a repetition of the end of verse 3. So it says, you are, say to the people, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So take off, so now take off your ornaments. And so they do. And then in verse 6, we see if these last verses of this section that God instructs mourning over sin here. What's the appropriate response to this idolatry that has happened in Exodus chapter 32? The appropriate response is this type of mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. And so they are mourning over their sin. They are responding appropriately. They sound as though they are, have repentant hearts. But I revisit that question. Are you willing to have the land without the Lord? And that can resonate with us today, can it? Of all the things that, that tempt us, all the things that even, even the good promises of God, if those were without God, what would we really have? What would we really have? So let's look at how God's presence defines Moses in this next section. This tense of meeting, verse 7 through 11 says this. 
Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp. This is, this is not the tabernacle which is coming in, in 35 through 40. This is somewhat of a simple, right, smaller, a little bit more temporary tent. He pitched it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called in the tent of meeting, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up. And each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. What a scene here, huh? When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud, we'll talk about it in just a second, would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses, verse 10. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus says the Lord, thus, excuse me, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So we see here Moses as this intercessor, and this is point number two, intercession restores access. So Moses is going to be this mediator who's going to reconcile access between God and his people. They, have, they are far off. Where does Moses pitch this tent? He puts it far off from the camp, right? He makes, the, he makes this camp, he makes this tent, and he, he establishes it way outside the camp. All right? They can see him, but he's away from his people. So God has just threatened to break off communication with his people. And there, are seven, there were seven chapters mapping out the tabernacle instructions. Its, its construction now seems to be in jeopardy. But Moses is this intercessor. All right. There's an example. There's this example here of an alternate tabernacle where Moses can access God. So it's only Moses going out, you see. And the people cannot access God in this same way. This cloud goes with Moses only, not with the people. And so the people watch from a distance and worship as their intercessor fellowships with God. But what about this pillar of cloud? All right. God gives them the pillar of cloud to lead the people by day and by and the pillar of fire by night. Do you remember this? Do you remember the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire? Do you remember these? They provide light in the night and they, they, the cloud is evidenced during the day and they lead them through the Red Sea into Sinai. So these are evidences of God's presence with the people. This marks God's presence with them. Okay? So we see that here. This is, and, and the people are seeing this in a distance and they are knowing when Moses goes in that tent and they see that pillar of cloud, they are seeing, they are seeing God and Moses meet in that tent. And then it tells us how Moses meets with them. 
It says face to face. This is a little Hebrew phrase that helps the reader understand what's happening. It's not literal. He's not seeing the face of God here. Because we know God is a spirit. John chapter 4, we're supposed to worship God in spirit and in truth. This face-to-face is an expression of intimacy. And this is not to be necessarily taken literally because we can, we can see that if you skip down to verse 20, which we're not really going to cover today. But look, look at this. Verse 20 says, But he said, You cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. So this is a different kind of face-to-face. This is an intimacy that this intercessor Moses has with God. So, my question here is, do you believe you can be made right with God on your own? We have a picture here of an other. An other going out... And helping intercede and mediate be on the people's behalf with God. Or maybe you sense that you can keep going in and out of God's favor, right? Based on your performance. Well, I did these right things with God. I did these bad things so God doesn't love me anymore. And so we, like the people of Israel, need someone like Moses. Outside of ourselves who can reconcile us to God. Moses was not without sin. Remember, Moses even felt unqualified to to do this. So what makes Moses special? He's set apart by God, God's presence, the very presence of God. The fact that God says, Moses, I will be with you, that is what makes him set apart. That is what allows him to be this intercessor, is that God has chosen Moses to be gracious to and to be merciful to. So here is even better news. Listen to this. Is we are on the other side of the Old Testament. Duh, AJ, right? Hello, I just got that memo, okay? And Hebrews 3 says that Jesus, the good and better Moses, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 through 16 says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is the kind of better Moses that we have access to now who intercedes on our behalf. You see, the New Testament people of God, the church, can confidently draw near to God. 1 John 5, 13 and 14 says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, right, informed by the word of God, he hears us. Doesn't 
This doesn't mean that there aren't trials and tests and discipline like we, like we heard about last week, right? But if you repent and trust in Jesus, here is who you are in him. We need these reminders that we are known by the I am. We are known by him. Here's who you are in Christ. Listen to these. Don't, don't try to follow with me. I'm just going to rattle them off. If you want to go back and get the list or ask me about it later, do so. Here it is. I am loved, 1 John 3.3. I am forgiven, Colossians 3.13. I am adopted as a child of God, Romans 8.15. I am a friend of Jesus, John 15.14. I am a joint heir with Jesus, sharing in inheritance with him, Romans 17. Romans 8.17. There is no Romans 17. I am united with God and one spirit with him, 1 Corinthians 6, 17. I am a member of Christ's body, 1 Corinthians 12, 27. I am redeemed and purchased by Christ's blood, Colossians 1, 14. I am complete in Jesus Christ, Colossians 2, 10. I am free from condemnation, Romans 8, 1. I am a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. I am chosen of God, holy and deeply loved, Colossians 3, 12. I am God's co-laborer, 2 Corinthians 6, 1. I am seated in heavenly places with Christ, Ephesians 2, 6. I am salt and light, Matthew 5. I am chosen to bear fruit, John 15, 16. I am one of God's living stones being built up in Christ as a spiritual house, 1 Peter 2, 5. I am always in the presence of God because he never leaves me, Hebrews 13, 5. There's a quote from John Owen, Communion with God. It says this, The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him, is not to believe that he loves you. If you are in Christ, you are deeply loved by the Father. You have an intercessor in Christ who is far greater than Moses. So God's presence with us defines his people. Let's look at Verses 12 through 17. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people. Remember Moses, Moses calling, calling God out a little bit here on, on verse 1. Remember that? He's like, hold up, you changed the language on me. Earlier back in Exodus 3.8, you said, Moses, I'm going to bring them up. And now you're not even claiming them or this whole journey you got me on. What's up? Man, Moses being able to speak to God like that, incredible. He says, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people? from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this, 
very thing that you have that you have spoken I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name so I included that verse 17 in with this final section we're going to look at because if you look at verse 17 check out verse 12 it almost mimics it see you say to me bring up up this people but you have not let me know whom you will send with me you have said I know you by name and you have also found favor in my sight and the way the grammar works here it <clears throat> it repeats that this this very thing that you have spoken I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name so our, our third point here, intimacy produces godliness. As we think about God's presence defining his people, intimacy with God produces godliness. So we saw that in, in verse 12, Moses is like, man, God, you're not claiming the people or the journey anymore. What's going on here? And so he's been commissioned to lead these people and now God's righteous anger is going to consume them according to verse 5. So who am I going to have left to lead? Right? We, in, <clears throat> at the end of chapter 32, 3,000 of the idolaters were wiped out. There's hundreds of thousands of them on this journey. But Moses is saying, if if these wicked people get near you, you're saying you're going to consume them. You're going to wipe them out. So who am I going to have left to lead? So who's coming with me here? And then in verse 13, we see, Now therefore, I, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways. God, I know you love me, Moses is saying. But do you still love them? You do still love them, right? I do not want to make this journey alone. You didn't call me to wander in the desert and in the wilderness alone, Moses is saying. There is no honor in arriving at the promised land alone for Moses, is what we hear right here. Moses is saying, I'm, I was called on this journey as this is a team sport, right? He's saying, I'm not in this for the MVPs. I'm not in this for the individual accolades. I am in this to fulfill the mission in which you have called me. So here it is. In verse 13, how the question may be based on the title of the sermon. You may be thinking walking in here. How do I get the presence of God? AJ, I need the formula. Spit it out for me. Where is it at? Where's this, where's this presence of God formula that I can figure out? You see, Moses has the answer here. Moses has been the most intimate with God, we see. And then what do we see Moses saying? Look at this, look at verse 13. He says essentially this, I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. That's the answer. Because here's what it's going to produce. Where it says, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Moses has been the most intimate with God. And what does he request? What does he want more of? Does he say, hey, I need a little bit more of that like corner lot. 
you know? And you know, God, it would be awesome if you like sped up the industrial revolution and you got us like some wheels out here. That would help, right? I know they're going to do that in a couple thousand years. So if you just hook this up right now, it'd be gravy. Does he request that? What does he request? What does he ask for? What does he say? I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good and I want more of God. I've experienced the presence of God and guess what I want now? More presence of God. I've experienced the presence of God and I want more of God. That's the answer that Moses gives us. So when you experience God's presence, you're going to want more of it. You're going to have new desires and new affections for the Lord. You're going to want to be with him more. You're going to want to fellowship with him more. You're going to, sure, you're going to still struggle with sin. We're in this Romans 7 type struggle where we're pulled and pressed on in this fallen world. But we are going to have new affections for Christ. We're going to want to spend time in God's word. We're going to want to spend time with him in prayer, fellowshipping, communing with God. And you're not going to get bored of it. Because the plan is about to blow up. Are we going to make it to the promised land? What's happening? My whole world, the whole purpose of which you called me, God, is blowing up. And Moses says, I want more of you, God. Show me your ways. I want to know you. In order that I may know you. God is going to give you a hunger for himself and his word. Intimacy with God is going to produce godliness. Check out verse 14. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Some Bible scholars, commentators really highlight the singular here. Saying like Moses is pleading for himself and the people. And then God's, God's using some singular language here. And so then Moses comes back over in verse 15 and says this. He says, and he said to him, if your presence does not go up with me, look at that singular, do not bring us up from here. Keeping the people that he's interceding on at the front of the argument. And then we see verse, verse 16. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct and I, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? So he says basically, how is Genesis 12.2 going to work. What does Genesis 12.2 say? Look at this real quick. Genesis 12.2. It says this, and I will make you, of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So how is that promise going to come to fruition? How is it going to come to fruition if we're not distinct from all the other nations? If we don't have your presence, what makes God's people distinct? God's presence makes his people distinct. The ultimate purposes of the church is to make disciples of Jesus. And those purposes are tied. 
They are interlaced, interlocked, cannot be separated from the presence of God. If you try to do the Christian life without the presence of God, you are going to be empty. You are going to be failing flat on your face. Verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. God will be present with the people for Moses' sake. Why does God agree to do so? He is pleased with Moses because he has shown Moses grace and mercy. And he knows Moses by name. He knows him. He knows him intimately. But there is one, the Father is more pleased with than Moses. And one who truly knows the Father because he himself is God among us, God with us, Emmanuel. Jesus Christ our Lord. John 17, 25 and 26 says this. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And those, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So, if you are in Christ, be reminded God is pleased with you. Not because of what you have done. Not because of your good works. Even those are filthy rags. But he is pleased with you because of Christ who covers you. Christ is the reason why. He blots out our sin by becoming sin himself. If you are in Christ, God knows you by name. Not only does God know you, he dwells in you. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Not only is it this We've got, to, we've got to have this, this tent, this tabernacle where God could dwell. Emmanuel came, God with us, dwelt among us, and he leaves us with his spirit. That we are the temple of God. That we are the temple of God's spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. God's spirit dwells in me. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. Not only can we cling to the presence of God with us now, but we will have it for eternity through the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf for all those who will trust in him. Revelation 21, 3. So we're in the beginning of the Bible here, right? All the way at the end. Revelation 21, 3. And it says this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. God's presence defines his people. Let it define you. Let him define you and nothing else. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can lay claim to these truths about who you are. God, that we can be known as children of God and we can proclaim, and so we are. God, we pray that your presence would be among us, that your presence would dwell in us, your spirit would dwell in us. We would be reminded of that truth each and every day, that we would be reminded that we are the temple of the spirit, of your spirit, and that we have been bought with a price. God, that we are no longer our own, and that one day we will dwell with you forever. Unveiled. No more sin, no more anger, no more anguish, no more tears, God. We will dwell with you forever. God, be present with us now. We know you are as we trust in Christ. Father, build us up. Encourage us with your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.